Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Walt Woodward was Connecticut state historian for nearly 20 years. He retired in 2022 to make way for a new generation. Our state may be small, but it's got a big history. From the Connecticut witch trials of the 1600s to the Sandy Hook shootings and even the COVID-19 pandemic. Andy Horowitz is the next Connecticut state historian. He says that more recent history is still history. It isn't more valid the further back you go. Andy is also an associate professor at the University of Connecticut, and he joins us today in the studio. Andy, welcome to Where We Live. Thanks so much for having me. And congratulations on your new role. How are you feeling? Uh, It is such a unique job, and I'm so excited, even as I will admit to being somewhat daunted. Well, I mean, that's a good feeling to have. I think some mixed emotions there. And just a reminder for our listeners, too, that you can join the conversation. If you have a question for Andy, give us a call, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Andy, you got to take us back in time, if you will. What first drew you to studying history? And was there a moment where you realized that you want to focus on Connecticut? Well, my mom recently unearthed from a box in the attic a book that I published when I was in third grade. By book, I should be clear, I mean, it's, you know, some pieces of paper folded together. I think I had just gone on a school field trip to Sturbridge Village, and the book was called The Olden Times. So clearly there was something in me that was always drawn to history. I, I don't even remember writing that, but I'm putting it on my CV shortly. You should. Um, yeah, definitely. But I think, you know, in terms of a kind of pro- professional trajectory, it was, it was really kind of three things that came together for me right around when I was in college. One, at, one was um, I, had this, I had this great summer job starting in high school actually for the Department of Weights and Measures. And I realized this sounds like what does this have to do with history? But, but stay with me here. Um, I had a weight kit of standardized weights and it was my job every summer to check every scale in the city of New Haven where I was growing up uh, to make sure that when you put your like quarter pound of cheese on the scale that it actually weighed a quarter pound instead of a third of a pound. Consumer protection. Um, what this meant was that every summer for three years, I went down every street in the city of New Haven and went into every small grocery store, every deli, saw all the different kinds of foods that were for sale, all the different you know, languages people were speaking, all the different accents people had. And it just made me think of New Haven as a place where the whole world was. It just made it endlessly fascinating to me. And then I stayed in New Haven for college. And all of a sudden, all my classmates were from all over the country and even all over the world. And I became a kind of tour guide, you know, like the, suddenly the most interesting thing about me was that I was a townie, as they say. Right. Um, so I got to show off these places that I was learning about in my summer job. And then it was really junior year of college. I think everybody who has any kind of happy story about their life, there's a teacher in the middle of it who kind of reoriented their trajectory. And for me, it was uh, my my history professor, Glenda Gilmore, who helped me get an internship at this place called the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina. 
And oral history basically just means interviewing people about their life experiences. And I got set up as a 20-year-old to interview this white civil rights activist who was in his 60s then named Al McShirley. Uh, Al had been uh, a radical uh, in, in the 50s and 60s, and he was arrested, I think, twice for sedition for plotting to overthrow the Commonwealth of Kentucky, uh, which he assured me later he was not trying to do. Overthrow capitalism maybe, as he said to me, but not necessarily Kentucky. Uh, he had been surveilled by the FBI. It just gives you a sense of how radical he seemed in his time and place. And he was donating his FBI file to the university and wanted to tell his side of the story. So it was my job to sit in his living room for many, many hours and record his accounts of Stokely Carmichael and Marion Barry and these other giants of the civil rights movement. He had led a group of radical miners um, to the Poor People's Campaign in 1968 in Washington, D.C. And I just couldn't believe that I could sit in this man's living room and ask him questions about these, what to me were world historical events. So then when I came back to New Haven from that experience, knowing what oral history was, being so interested in learning about New Haven and telling stories about it, I went back to Professor Gilmore's office and she said, you should start an oral history project here in New Haven. And she and I did that together um, right after I graduated from college. And that's what really set me on this path. Well, I just want to say I didn't realize that summer job existed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. I, I had a badge even, which was really quite a um, – I mean, shouldn't have given me a badge. I'll just leave it at that. I was going to say I, – I, The we're, power. We're, mm -hmm. we're five minutes into this conversation. I'm already learning so much. <laughs> but I love your description about sort of your first getting your feet wet into becoming a historian because it's very much like being a journalist really. You know, I've always thought it's my privilege for people to invite me into their homes or even to just take a moment and, and speak with me about their experience, you know, whatever whatever the experience may be. And I love that you mentioned the oral history aspect because that plays a huge role in, in your sort of um, inspiration and you continue to do so. So can you talk about oral history a bit? Because I think ironically, we don't hear about it very much. Although I would I would say that that's kind of the beginning of a lot of history, how history is being recorded, right? Yeah, that's right. So oral history, like I said, is really just about um, interviewing people about their life experiences, their firsthand account. And so, you know, when I started the New Haven Oral History Project, um, the idea was simply to – I worked with Yale students to record interviews about just the living history of the city, stuff that people could remember. So we did interviews on everything from the Black Panther Party to the perfection of the pizza and sort of everything in between. Um, and the, what's really special about oral history is that it lets you bring new people and topics and themes into the historical record. Historians often you know, have relied on the kind of archival documents that only the rich and powerful leave behind. And oral history just totally unlocks that and allows us to think about the extraordinary significance of ordinary people. Um, you know, you don't really have to be famous for your life to be history. So mm -hmm. I'll, I'll give you an example of one of the interviews we did. If there are any uh, New Haven old timers listening, they might remember Sidney Bruskin, who had a bicycle store on Chapel Street in New Haven. And one of my students was interviewing him about going to Hill House High School during the Depression. And Sid Bruskin was a uh, – he was the son of Russian Jewish immigrants. He grew up in a neighborhood called Oak Street, um, which was a pretty tight – you know, his couple of blocks, really tight-knit neighborhood of people, families like his, uh, Jewish immigrants. So he told a story about being in the lunchroom at now the citywide high school and seeing other Jewish boys eat ham sandwiches. And, you know, Jews for kosher laws, they can't eat pork, they can't eat shellfish. So he just couldn't believe they were doing this. And he said he was sort of moved to try a bite of the sandwich. And at the end of that day, 
he said in the interview that he was afraid to go outside because he thought he was going to get struck by lightning. And you know, when you think about the sort of stories that the newspaper might report, um, there's not going to be a New Haven Register headline that says, you know, boy eats ham sandwich does not get struck by lightning. Like this is not this is not a newsworthy story, but it certainly changed his life. Um, and as historians, it gives us uh, insight into these very, you know, fundamental themes in American history about assimilation or acculturation, uh, about how someone came into a new kind of consciousness of themselves in the crucible of the public school in the 1930s and the Great Depression. Um, so it's a, an extraordinarily uh, historically significant moment that we would really have uh, no record of if my student had not sat there and just asked Sid Bruskin what it was like to go to school. Um, so in a million ways like that, the Oral History Project, well, I shouldn't say a million, in 250 ways. We did around 250 <laughs> interviews uh, like that that are all archived at Sterling Library at Yale and open to the public. Um, and we use them to build that archive but also to do uh, public programs and museum exhibits. We did big exhibits on urban renewal in New Haven. We did one on the New Haven Holocaust Memorial. And it was all about just trying to um, open up the 20th century history of the city. Well, and, and as you're as you're sharing those anecdotes, I wonder if there is something to be said about hearing the voices, because that's certainly an appreciation that I started to have becoming a radio reporter. And now I'm sitting here having this conversation with you live on the radio is you can't really capture the literal voice through writing because I started as a newspaper reporter and as I have been one for a very long time. And with and that's the appreciation that I got is is hearing their cadence, hearing their emotions. So does oral history, does it capture something that textbooks don't? You know, why is it important to, to sort of continue having oral history? Yeah, you know, I think you're, you're absolutely right. There's something to be said for hearing someone's voice. And in part, it's just more information. It gives you a sense of emotion and feeling. And, you know, I think there's sometimes a sense that history is just what the rich and powerful do. It's an account of kings and presidents and kind of policy decisions. I think we've moved away from that over the past decades, but it still lingers as the kind of disciplinary baggage of, of, of history, the study of history. Um, and getting to hear people who are more or less like you and me talk in voices that are more or less yours and mine with emotions that we can relate to, even as they may be you know, historical situations that are very distant from our own, I think they just make uh, remind us that that history is real, right? And we want to get into more of what you study later. But I want to ask first: when we think about state history, uh, when we think about history in general, I think we tend to think hundreds of years, thousands of years. But you're looking at more modern history, which is still history. So why do you think? Deep history is considered more valid by some. Yeah, there is kind of a funny bias where people feel like the more, um, like the older something is, the more historic it is. Right. Um, if there's no dirt on it, it's not history. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, like I, I, I tell my students, uh, I told my students at, at UConn on the first day of class that we have to come to think of history not just as the study of the past. It is that. It is the study of the past. But it's also the study of how things come to pass. It's the study of what happened, but it's also the study of why things happened and what other things might have happened. So, you know, history, I guess what I'm trying to say is that to me, history is the study of change over time. And it doesn't matter what event you put under that analytical lens. It can be something that happened a thousand years ago or 500 years ago or, or a week ago. But historians are interested in studying things in time. 
So geographers are going to try to place their events on a map, and historians are going to try to place their events on a calendar. Um, and I think that thinking about causation, you know, why one thing causes another, um, that is so important a skill to be able to cultivate sort of no matter what year you're looking at. And with your new role as a state historian, how are you approaching this job? And are there projects that you're already excited to work with? And and also, so many questions in one question, but oral history, is that going to play a big role too? Well, you know, oral history really informs um, my approach to the job um, in, in a couple of different ways. I'll, you, you did ask me a few questions there. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll answer one and then the other. Um, no, I'll answer them both because I can do that. Yes, you uh, can. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm just thinking I got distracted just now. You heard me get distracted because I was remembering um, a story that my dad likes to tell. I think it's I think it's from an old George Burns and Gracie Allen uh, skit where the couple goes to Paris and Gracie very dramatically um, at a romantic dinner orders a bottle of imported wine. And George says, Gracie, what are you doing? We're, we're in France. Why are you ordering imported wine? She says, well, you know, the best wine is always imported, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to drink American wine. Um, and I think that we have that kind of bias sometimes in Connecticut. We think that the imported story, the story from long ago or far away is always the one that is um, somehow more important. And so one of the things I want to do as a state historian is just to advocate for the importance of the world right around us. Um, but that doesn't mean in, in a curious way, the world right around us doesn't mean narrowing the lens at all. So uh, maybe I'll say something about something I learned from an oral history project I did a number of years ago about the Holocaust Memorial in New Haven. Um, This was a project that came to me. um, There's a New Havener named Dora Selinsky, and some of her colleagues were really interested in the Holocaust Memorial in New Haven, which was built in 1977. It was the first Holocaust Memorial built on public land in North America. it was, it was a, designed by a coalition of Holocaust survivors and some of their allies, second-generation Jewish immigrants in New Haven. They worked with a, um, a young staffer for the then-mayor, Frank Logue. Her name was Rosa DeLauro. She, so she's gone on, obviously, to do other things. But the, the, what, what they wanted to do was, at the time, I think the 30th anniversary of that memorial, was to simply document the work that went into making this important site that's adjacent to Edgewood Park in New Haven. But also, you know, I was interested and the students I worked with were interested not just in asking um, what had happened, but why, like, why build a monument in New Haven to an event that happened in in Europe? It, it's not at all obvious why that needed to be there. Um, so that was the question we asked a lot of these, a lot of the people involved in building it. I remember one woman, um, Shifra Zomkoff, who was a Holocaust survivor, she had lost a lot of her family. And she knew some of the people that she had worked with um, had brought uh, uh, some earth from Auschwitz, from the site of the concentration camp, and had interred that at the center of the monument at the memorial. And so she knew that there must be ashes there. And for her, it was so important to have a grave site for her family. There was no other marker and so for some people, you know, that's why the memorial had to be in New Haven. So they had a place to go and and remember their their family who had died. But I also remember um, another another New Haven man named Lou Lair who said very simply, the monument, the memorial had to be here because New Haven was our home. And that, 
I bring that up here because that what that taught me sort of in the long run is that because you know their future, these people's future was Connecticut's future. Their history had to be part of Connecticut's history too. So you know, like I said, focusing on the significance of of what's right around us doesn't mean narrowing the focus right at all. In fact, it often means making it much wider. Um, you know, we think about who is here today. Uh, we have, what, 15% of our neighbors were born in another country, so much higher percentage of that. It's half a million people right there, but much higher percentage of that um, have parents that were born in another country. So that means that we bring into Connecticut's history, the history that they bring with them is the Mexican Revolution or the Spanish-American War and the annexation of Puerto Rico. You know, it's uh, the revolutions for freedom in the Caribbean. It's it's all of these things that, you know, because they are their um, – individual histories, they then become our common history. And you also worked on another project really, uh, really quickly. Can you talk about the urban renewal? Yeah. Uh, so urban renewal um, is this period in American history I'm thinking about from the mid-50s to the late 1960s when urban reformers and city planners sought to totally remake uh, cities in the throes of, of racial inequality and suburbanization. Um, and to be really quick about it, New Haven was Exhibit A because it got um, more federal money per person than any other city in the country. Uh, and when I was you know, interviewing people about New Haven uh, – excuse me, about urban renewal in New Haven, it was the moment that seemed to explain why the city was the way it was. Why were there seas of parking lots downtown New Haven? Why were the neighborhoods so, so stratified? Why were there highways running everywhere? Um, and – so anyway, you know, to make a to, to try to make what was a very robust story short, there had been a view that urban renewal was a failure, and people were very upset about it. And in our interviews, um, we asked people simply what life was like in the neighborhoods that got renewed and how they faced the process of urban renewal. Do I have time for it to tell you a go for it? Go yeah. For it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, I just remember what one or two that that stick with me. One was this woman Teresa Argento, who'd grown up in Worcester Square. Um, which was the Italian-American neighborhood in, in New Haven. And, and she said when she was a kid, when she walked down the street in Worcester Square in the summer when people had their windows open, everybody had the same Italian radio station playing. And as she walked down the street, she wouldn't miss a word to the song. And it gave me a sense of just this incredibly tight-knit, cohesive neighborhood that was then much of which was knocked down to make way for Interstate 91. I interviewed another man, uh, Bob Silverman, who grew up in Oak Street, the old kind of Jewish neighborhood. And asked him the, the the word that city planners used when they knocked down neighborhoods was slum clearance. Um, and I asked him, I said, you know, did you think Oak Street was a slum? He said, well, if it was a slum, it was a thriving slum because we had viable lives there. And, you know, there was an economy there and we loved our neighbors. And I think that was a much more nuanced understanding of what made the city work than the one that the city planners brought with them. Um, and it uh, – it has changed the way – certainly I understand that period of, of American history by hearing you know, that New Haveners, while they mourn the failures of urban renewal, its inability to um, solve the racial and economic inequalities that fracture life in Connecticut and as across the United States, they also look back with some uh, admiration for the ambition that said that we can try to make the world better and that the federal government can be involved in really – making um, direct impacts in people's lives. And just because the answers that uh, were given to them in the 50s were wrong doesn't mean that they think that we should stop asking those questions. 
And speaking of questions, uh, we are going to take a caller, but just a quick reminder for our listeners that if you have a question about Connecticut history, let us know, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So we are going to take a quick call from Elisa Davis, who is calling from New Haven. Elisa, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Thank you so much. Um, I actually do have a question that dips back a little bit further into history, um, which came out of reading The Legend of Sleepy Hollow with my kids and before we headed down there. And there's a passage in the book where the narrator describing Ichabod Crane, and he says he was a native of Connecticut, a state which supplies the Union with pioneers for the mind and sends forth yearly its legions of country schoolmasters. And I was, so I was curious to what degree, because I didn't realize that if it's true, that Connecticut was associated with producing teachers for the nation. Well, thank you so much for the call and the question, Lisa. We appreciate it. I think we have one of the first teachers' colleges in Connecticut. Is that correct? I, I, I think that's right. You know, one of the... Um one of the traps of my job is that I'm meant to be a walking encyclopedia of Connecticut history. And I, <laughs> and I, and I know a lot. I'm going to brag. I know a lot about Connecticut history, but, but not everything. So I don't have the date on the teacher's college committed to memory. Um, but, it, but it's certainly the case that Connecticut has a very rich history of uh, commitment to education. Um, we have a particularly dense and high um, concentration of colleges and universities, even today, obviously. Um, and so it doesn't um, surprise me to hear that that would be the reputation uh, in, in the book. Yeah, we'll definitely do a little research and get back to you, Lisa, on that. And, and uh, on a related note, too, the state also just finalized a new set of standards around how to teach social studies in public schools. So speaking of literature and history and humanities and, and also talking about how to ensure diverse voices are centered beyond uh, elective classes. So what are your thoughts about the heightened political pressures that educators are facing? Um, because it's such a different environment, say, when, when, um, when Sleepy Hollow was written. Well, you know, I guess a, a couple things. One is those new state standards are so important. Um, sometimes the word revisionist history can feel like a pejorative to people, like it's a critique. But, you know, we don't talk about revisionist science. <laughs> you know, we don't, we, you, you don't want to be treated by a doctor who's reading from a treatment manual from a century ago. And in the same way, we don't want to teach our students uh, with history books that were written a century ago. And there were errors in those old books. And, you know, we live in a new time and historians always ask new questions of the past. And right now, a really salient question is, how do we live together across distinctions of race and class? That is one of the central questions of our time. How can we make a diverse democracy work? So it's so important that we update our state standards, which is a way of saying it's so important we ask new questions of the past to try to you know, surface that useful information from the storehouse of Connecticut history uh, to try to aid us moving in to, to the future. Um, so obviously, I think those are, those are so important. And in terms of the political pressures, you know, uh, respectfully, even the way you asked the question, you said, you know, maybe the politics were different at the time that Sleepy Hollow was written. But there are always politics. And I think there's this hope that we can study history in a way that kind of um, drains its political importance, that somehow once something reaches far enough in the past that it's kind of a safe place, um, that we can all kind of agree on what happened. And I totally uh, relate 
to the desire to be able to have some conversations that don't feel so charged. You know, the world can feel so difficult um, that we just want a breath. But I don't think history is the place to look for that. You know, um, uh, the history of politics is a political history. <laughs> the history of social conflict is is a is a history of conflict. And you know, if we if we try to pretend like um, the debates that we have in the present, you know, didn't exist in the past. We're really kind of carving out a view of human life that is amoral. And we shouldn't want to live in a place where we can retreat from our values and morality. I think instead we just need to try to be really honest about how politics, you know, shape the questions we ask and shape the lives we live then and now. You've been listening to Andy Horowitz, who is the new Connecticut State Historian, and he's also an associate professor at the University of Connecticut. And he'll be here with us this hour to talk about his new role and some of his work in modern history. Coming up next, we hear about his extensive work in environmental history and disaster studies. Let us know if you have a question about Connecticut history. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, Connecticut's new state historian, Annie Horowitz, is joining us in studio. Listeners might be a little surprised to learn that not all of his research and work has been focused on Connecticut. For years, he studied the history of disasters and environmental events. Much of his research has been around Hurricane Katrina, which struck the Gulf Coast in August 2005, and it's considered to be one of the deadliest hurricanes to hit the United States. But before we get to that, Andy, I just want to ask you to sort of um, give us an understanding of what disaster studies and environmental history means. Yeah. So when people hear that word disaster, I think they think of a kind of acute event, like a, a, a catastrophe that kind of comes out of nowhere, an unprecedented event. Um, and as a historian, I'm allergic to the idea of something being unprecedented or coming out of nowhere. Uh, so my interest in disaster studies has often been just to find different ways to understand how disasters have histories, to understand what happened before the bad weather came that gives the weather its meaning. Uh, an example I like to give is, you know, if you heard that somebody was struck by lightning, you might say, uh, well, that's just cosmic bad luck. But if you hear that their boss made them go outside during a thunderstorm holding a tall metal pole, 
this totally changes, you know, the, what you even think you're talking about. No longer are you talking about the weather. You're talking about labor relations and power and all of that. Um, and so often I find as a historian just sort of widening the view and extending the timeline, bringing more pages onto the calendar can help us make sense of what can otherwise seem to be senseless events. And that's been my, my approach to disasters. I was going to say, you know, was there a moment that got you interested in studying disasters? Um, well, I remember you, you mentioned Katrina, which I ultimately wrote, wrote, wrote a book about when I was teaching at Tulane for nine years before getting to come back home to Connecticut. But I, I remember in, in 2005 watching um, Katrina on TV after the hurricane came into the Gulf of Mexico and overwhelmed the you know, flood walls that were meant to protect New Orleans and its suburbs. Um, I had at the time an important person to me. She was, she was then my ex-girlfriend, and she's now my wife and mother of my children. So there's another story there. But I called, I called her on the phone um, as I was watching this terrible thing unfold on TV. And, I, and when I called her, she was living in Louisiana. Uh, she was living in Lafayette, Louisiana, two hours west of New Orleans. And um, I just tried to cheer her up, really. And I said, well, you know, tomorrow, I know today's terrible, but tomorrow you're going to see the most powerful country in the history of the world do something that's just obviously good. You know, I was just imagining what the Navy would be able to do, you know, in a flooded American city. And those of us who remember Katrina know that the next day no help came and more people drowned in their own homes. And the day after that, no help came and more people died. Um, and so I really, for me, I was maybe 24 years old. And this was just a shocking moment, not just the, the horror of seeing what was happening to people in Louisiana, but also thinking about how I could have been so wrong about my own country, how my expectations could have been so off from what actually happened. And that really made Katrina matter to me. It made me want to you know, continue to attend to it. And then ultimately, a few months later, I was still at the time doing the New Haven Oral History Project. And um, I got invited by the Louisiana State Museum to go do um, interviews with people about the sort of post-Katrina city. So then it became a kind of academic study for me. And I really felt um, it just mattered to me more and more. So when I went to uh, graduate school, I knew that that was the dissertation I wanted to write. It was something about giving the Katrina disaster a history. And you mentioned earlier that you're allergic to seeing natural disasters or, or disasters in general as a random event. So I apologize if I give you hives with this question. <laughs> but, but you argue that disasters are not objective facts, but rather they are interpretive fiction. So can you expound what do you mean by that? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a perfectly good question. And that is a particularly uh, academic sounding sentence for me, isn't it? Uh, disasters are not objective facts. They are interpretive fictions. This is what I mean. Um, you can't identify, you can't isolate a disaster from other kinds of bad news. The way you can tell the difference between whatever, a banana and an apple. It's like those are objective facts. We know that a banana is not an apple. But what makes um, a flood a special category of human suffering? You know, when someone loses their house because it floods, uh, they are entitled by American law and policy to all kinds of disaster relief because we come to believe, we've decided as a society that that's an illegitimate way for someone to become homeless and it has to be repaired. That person has to be put back the way they were before the flood came. But if someone loses their job because their employer leaves the state um, and their mortgage goes underwater and they become homeless that way, we don't call that a disaster. We say that's just the way the world is. We naturalize that kind of change. And so as a scholar of disasters, I'm really interested 
in the ways that we sort of ideologically um, create categories of suffering, some of which deserve attention and immediate repair, and some of which we say are just the facts of life and, you know, tough luck. And I want to ask, too, because you mentioned earlier, when we think of disaster responses, we believe that this has to do with emergency preparedness, just like your reaction to Katrina. You know, you were you had this idea that what was going to happen and it did not happen, which was the preparedness and the reaction. So where a plan is put in place and acted out when the disaster, when a disaster happens, but now you, so you argue that disaster response is much more subjective. So can you give us an idea what that looks like? Yeah, you know, I think that there's, especially because in the disasters we tend to think about, um, we often call them natural disasters, you know, Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane Sandy or the in Connecticut, the, the floods of 1936 or 1955, or we have all these, you know, we're familiar with these names, all named after the weather. Um, but the, as a historian, the more that I look at these kind of events, the more it becomes clear to me that the weather is rarely responsible for most of the changes that we associate with those events. So just to give, I'll give an example from, from my Katrina book, because I think it's pretty clear. Um, when the levees broke, there were 130,000 people who remained in New Orleans. Now, they had several days warning. And so there was a description of them at the time that said that they were just sort of, that they had chosen to stay. And of course, the 130,000 people who remained in the city were the ones that had the much higher higher risk of getting hurt or killed. Um, 130,000 people in New Orleans is more or less exactly the number of people who didn't have access to their own private cars. And they were disproportionately black people because of the history of the way that racism and economic inequality are connected. So this is a totally different version of the story. You go from having this storm that comes out of nowhere uh, to upset people who made a bad split decision choice not to evacuate. That's sort of one. That's the natural disaster emergency version of the story. The historical version of the story says that um, history had left some people with resources and others without them. For some people in New Orleans, uh, the federal government had spent decades building interstate highway systems and subsidizing gasoline uh, to make it possible for them to own their own private cars. And when they saw that there was a storm coming, it was easy for them to leave and they had somewhere to go. Other people, history had rendered them, um, you know, left them relying on public transportation, which, by the way, burns much less gas and is much less responsible for the climate crisis that fuels the storm that was upon them in the first instance. But there they were unable to leave. Um, so it's just, again, history can clarify why uh, bad luck seems to affect some people and not others. And you mentioned the floodings that happened in, in Connecticut in past history. But as we have seen in contemporary history, that we're not immune to natural disasters here in Connecticut as well. We've had several major storms that either was threatening our coastways or actually hitting landfall. So how does what happened with Katrina inform how we think about storm preparation here in Connecticut now, does looking back at a disaster, you know, if you will, help us prepare for the next one? Yeah, I, I think it does. And, and unfortunately, I think that it tells us that the work we have to do as we confront the climate crisis is very substantial. And it's not going to be like, you know, I wish I could come here and say three cool hacks Connecticut can do to, uh, you know, address the climate crisis. But like I just said, you know, how do we... Um, how do we affect the, the, the problem of evacuation even when we have warning? 
Well, this is a problem of structural inequality. We have to build public transportation that's able to move a lot of people out of harm's way very quickly. We have to make sure that people have accesses to re- access to enough wealth in the bank so that they can pay for a hotel for a few days. So that they, you know, um, those are not small changes. They're they're big ones. Um, but but I do think that it helps us to know that the sort of changes that we need to make if we want to be safer from these emergencies will also just make our lives better anyway. You know, if the problem of evacuation is the problem of a ton of traffic on the interstate um, or people not having access to cars, if the solution is great trains that can move us around, well, we get to use those 365 days a year no matter what the weather is. Um, so I think there is kind of a hopeful story about some of those structural changes, but but they're, but they're quite substantial. Um, you know, I think I, I, I guess the other thing to say is that, you know, we call these um, sort of – we call it the climate crisis. We call these natural disasters. And it, as I was saying before, kind of focuses our attention on the weather. But really the weather is just one piece of the story. I was, um, I was just reading – when you're a historian, uh, you end up – you're always reading something sort of that seems naturally. random to people. Yeah. No, yeah. So I, so I was going to say – I realize this might sound strange to listeners. I just was reading this about the speech that Franklin Roosevelt gave in Bushnell Park in 1936. That actually should not be surprising. Yeah. No, that's, that's my job. Uh, so I was reading this speech. I actually was learning I, – I was – I, I kind of knew this, but I, I was delighted to remember that there's a – that um, the city of Hartford buried – what was called the Hog River and is then now called uh, the, the Park River, buried it under the city. And I didn't realize that it runs right under the UConn-Hartford campus. Um, I was reading about how uh, Reverend Bushnell called it before they buried it, hell without the fire because it was so full of sewage and whatever. But it, it had flooded in 1936. This is the point I'm making here. Uh, the river had flooded in 1936. Much of Hartford had flooded. And Franklin Roosevelt came in the midst of the New Deal uh, on a campaign swing to Hartford. And he said, I'm looking at these floods and they – he said the lesson of the flood, this was his word, the lesson of the flood was that we need a federal response. This isn't a problem that each state – that no person can alone address the problem of flooding and no state alone can solve the problem of flooding. He said, you know, all this water came from Vermont. We can't ask Vermont to pay for, you know, all, to assume all the costs of keeping the water from coming to Connecticut. This is uh, something we all have to do together and, you know, as with flood control, as with, as with everything – the question is not, will the water come? It's going to rain. You know, we've been dealing with climate. For, it's the reason the caveman lived in the cave. You know, we've always dealt with bad weather. Um, the question is, what kind of social structures, what kind of political structures are we going to make to manage those? And I think Franklin Roosevelt was arguing we needed a strong federal government in the 30s to combat the scourge of flooding. And, you know, I would, I, you know, history teaches me that that has been the only force in American life that's really up to the scale of that kind of challenge. You've been listening to Andy Horowitz, who is in studio with us to talk about his role as the new Connecticut State Historian, and he'll be staying with us. Got a question about Connecticut history? Let us know, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. When does history start? 10 years ago, 20 years ago? It might be closer to the present than you think. 
Andy Horowitz is our Connecticut State Historian and Associate Professor at the University of Connecticut, and he joins us in the studio today. And we're going to start the segment with a quick caller from Tom, who is calling in from Manchester. Tom, you are on the air. Yes, good morning. Um, yeah, we live in Manchester. We're celebrating our um, bicentennial uh, this year, as well as the 60-year anniversary of Connecticut College Manchester, known, formerly known as Manchester Community College. So we have a number of good events about that. And the question I had is that... Um, History is still um, relevant, but it's a matter of um, respect for our diverse population, you know, that we have here at a high school. Languages are spoken at our high school and our um, population. I'm of African-American descent, so uh, I've been through the trials and tribulations of the civil rights movement, but it's just a matter of respecting each other, what's going on today in the world or here. I just think like there's like a, a partisan and cultural divide and code words and that we need to respect each other's, you know, history and background. And if we disagree, agree to disagree, um, just uh, don't have a backlash with, uh, like I said, a rise of a uh, hate backlash with this NCIS, NSC 131, a new neo-Nazi. It concerns me as a person of color because, you know, when it's go backwards, we need to go forward. So it's just a matter of thinking positive and that we all contribute to the economy and our, you know, our, uh, you know, expertise here in Connecticut. And it's a good state, that, you know, to live in. And we deal with, uh, we dealt with the country's history going back to the Revolutionary War and and, um, and 105 year anniversary of uh, Veterans Day and of um, World War One next month. And we lost 45 men here from Manchester during that conflict. Well, I want to thank you so much, Tom, for uh, sharing your experience and your story and your question. Uh, Andy, we'd love for you to respond to what Tom has to say. Well, of course, I couldn't agree more that we need to respect each other. Um, I tell my students that the most powerful and important tool that a historian has is empathy. You know, historians don't want to travel back in time and see what we could see if we were there. And we want to do that to a certain extent. But what we really want to do is something much more difficult, more metaphysical, which is to try to see the world through other people's eyes, to try to know what people at the time in that time and place saw and felt and thought and why. Um, and so that sort of impulse to empathy, it's the only thing that lets us make sense of the past. It's also the only thing that can enable us to make sense of the present and each other. Um, so I think history is crucial to that project of trying to repair uh, the caller, of course, is frighteningly correct that um, history doesn't, you know, move along a, a progressive timeline where, you know, things get better automatically, things get better and worse at the same time. And it's up to us to sort of summon those skills of empathy um, to try to silence the voices that would, you know, keep us away from those empathetic impulses. So I'm, I'm totally with you. Well, I think Tom, our caller is like me, who likes to ask multiple questions within one question. But he did mention a very important point is is the importance of celebration, especially local towns, and not just in Connecticut, but elsewhere. So speaking of a celebration, can you talk about how will you be a part of the Semi-Quincentennial Commission? And can you translate what exactly is Semi-Quincentennial? Yeah, Semi-Quincentennial. You know, uh, we are the state that uh, can claim Noah Webster, who made the, you know, this dictionary that announced American English as a, as a legitimate form. And so I think we should totally excuse ourselves from ever using that Latin word again. It does mean 250th. Um, it's uh, 2026 will mark 250 years since the Declaration of Independence. Um, 2026 may seem like a long way off to people, but it's upon us. And there's a lot of work going on 
in the state already to prepare to have a very meaningful year-long uh, commemoration of the Declaration of Independence, of this anniversary. I'm on the, as you said, the semi-quincentennial, the 250th commission that the governor uh, put together, along with a number of, of very talented people from across the state. Um, and we are work. we were just had a meeting the other day. We are working hard already to plan. And I, I guess I would say that we made, um, the commission has made two big decisions already. One is um, that this anniversary should be about 1776. Of course, you know, Connecticut was known is still sometimes called the provision state because of how much the state provided to George Washington's revolutionary army. And um, we have a number of historic sites in the state that, you know, are directly connected to the events of 1776. We can have so much more to learn about Roger Sherman, the first mayor of New Haven who signed the Declaration of Independence and on and on. Um, so we want to attend to those. But we also want to think about its legacies, the legacies of 1776. I had a teacher um, named Joe Roach who once described himself as a historian of the 18th century, the one that isn't over yet. And I think what he meant is this idea of legacy, that we live in the world that the Declaration of Independence created. This is – that's America. That's our nation. These are the questions of national belonging, what it means to be American. You know, these words from the preamble that they're like the only words that all of us in the United States have in common, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator by certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. That's the grounds on which essentially all of our political debates today take place on and those come to us from the 1770s. And so – uh, what we want to do as a commission, one of the decisions we made was to focus on the 1770s and all of the questions that the Declaration of Independence and the idea of America gives rise to. Uh, so it's not just a 250-year – or it's a 250-year story, not a one-year story. That's one decision. The other is that this year of commemoration shouldn't be planned by a few people in Hartford. Um, it needs to be participatory. We want all 169 towns to have something to say about the anniversary. There's going to be parades and fireworks and all manner of celebrations, but we also want to support and encourage communities to do whatever they feel like is necessary to make this a meaningful commemoration. So these might be this might be scholarship or archival research. It might be children's programs. It might be community debates. Um, we didn't want to foreclose how this anniversary might matter across the state. So what um, the Connecticut 250 Commission, I have to plug ct250.org if you want to learn more about what we're doing, um, is trying to create tools and resources for all different uh, organizations and towns across the state to make this uh, anniversary their own. So we have another question. A listener on Twitter wants to know, what do you know about the Leatherman? So according to ConnecticutHistory.org, among the more long-lived legends in Connecticut lore is the story of the old Leatherman, whose first mysterious appearance in the state occurred before the Civil War and whose career as a familiar itinerant carried on until his death in 1889. Have you heard of this, Andy? I can um, – one of the really important things in maintaining credibility in my experience is making sure you don't bluff. And I got to tell you, I know absolutely nothing about the Leatherman, but I also can tell you that I'm going to go uh, find out. <laughs> yes, because we want to know. <laughs> I'm very sorry. Uh, but, but you know, if there's a – would you say there was a Connecticut Explored? Uh, was that what the yes. – the, the I mean, Connecticut Explored such an incredible resource, yes, this great absolutely. magazine. And so, you know, w one of the great um, – uh, I mean, Connecticut Explored and ConnecticutHistory.org are the are two resources that for me, I just call on, find myself calling on multiple times every day. And we're so lucky as a state to have those resources that are continually being improved and built on. Um, 
So, you know, we're, we're spared from having to know every fact because we've got them in our pockets. Right. And we appreciate these questions because now I need answers to these questions. Yes, totally. We only have a couple minutes left, but I do want to get to two. Uh, Jane on Facebook says, for the first time, I noticed the turtle on the base of the Lafayette studio, uh, statue in Hartford. Such a funny piece of Connecticut history. So for our listeners that don't know, at the base of the Lafayette uh, statue in Hartford is a small figurine tortoise. Do you know about this, Andy? I mean, again, I got to tell you, no, I have no idea. Uh, (laughs) This, you know, this, there's an infinite, uh, this is kind of, I was saying this before that the, you know, as a, as a teenager walking around New Haven and feeling like the whole world was here, um, coming to understand that all of our histories as individuals bring the whole world into Connecticut history. This is just, uh, Connecticut is an infinite story. And um, you could stump me all day long, not because those things aren't important. They all, I mean, the whole point is they all are important. Right. Um, and, you know, I think uh, in the moment we're in, there, there is an incredible opportunity for people to go and learn about a lot of these things themselves. These resources like ConnecticutHistory.org, um, Connecticut Explored. Um, and I always, I'm always happy to get emails too and try to I don't know everything, but one of part of my training as a historian is learning how to find out answers to questions. And I love having these little mysteries to get to try to solve. So I hope the I hope to get an email about the turtle and I'll see what I can do. Yes, please. We hope so, too, because we are definitely turtle fans on the <laughs> Where We Live team. We only got about a minute left, but I do want to ask, you know, any final thoughts that you would like to to tell listeners as you're as you continue on to your new role? Um, well, I'm, I want to say thank you for having me, and and I'm, I'm so grateful, you know, for the opportunity to be here and for the opportunity to hopefully just to advocate for history and to, you know, what I want to say is I think the great project for me, a state historian, but also the project for us as a state is to try to craft a kind of collective autobiography, to tell stories about ourselves that we can really see ourselves in as a state that can help us know who we are and where we live and who we might yet be. Um, And that's not a project that any one person can do alone. So I'm just so grateful to have this community around me of people who care. You've been listening to Andy Horowitz, who's the Connecticut State Historian and Associate Professor at UConn. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your experiences and your stories. And we hope to have you back again soon. I'll be here. Thank you. Also, thank our listeners today for your amazing questions, and we're going to get digging after the show. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app, and thank you so much for listening.